Hi, my name is John Capek, and you're listening to Talking Blues. The name Capek, it's a Czechoslovakian name? That's correct. Tell me a little um, bit about your background. Well, my family, uh, I've done a little research into the genealogy. My family traces its history back in Bohemia, which is the province uh, in the Czech Republic that I was born into in the, in the city of Prague. Uh, so I would call myself a, a, a real Bohemian because that's where I was born. And um, so the family traces its history back probably about a thousand years that I've been able to track. Wow. Um, and through genealogical stuff. And uh, yeah, so I, I was born in, in Prague and my family um, had a very sad uh, um, history prior to my birth where both uh, my parents were incarcerated in concentration camps uh, during the war and uh, lost most of the extended family and uh, when they got together I came to be and uh, um, soon after um, there was a Russian invasion of that territory and my parents said enough so the first uh, place uh, they could find their way out of more trouble was Australia, where um, I grew up. Um, it was difficult to leave uh, Europe at the time. Everybody wanted to get out, and uh, it required some support and sponsorship. And the only person that my uh, parents could find who would uh, um, support them with the immigration happened to be in Melbourne, Australia. And that uh, was kind of a default situation. We weren't actually refugees. My, uh, my father was fairly uh, successful in his life, in his business, and uh, so we were immigrants. What did your dad do? Um, he was a university graduate uh, engineer uh, specializing in uh, food, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and... Uh, um, Prior, uh, right after the war, he was—he had been in the army, in the Czech army, and he rejoined the army after coming out of the c concentration camps as a captain. And uh, so he was always fairly well off, he owned his own house, and um, uh, did did quite well. Uh, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I, I've I've done some work documenting um, with Holocaust survivors. I've interviewed a number of musicians whose parents were Holocaust survivors. Can you talk to me about how your parents dealt with that? Um, they were severely traumatized. Uh, I would say both my parents likely suffered from PTSD. And uh, the agenda of bringing up children uh, was somewhat distorted. It was all about survival because uh, you know, another Hitler was around the corner. So... For years, until quite recently, I would never leave my house without two passports in my pocket, I, an Australian one and uh, an American one. Um, I'm an American citizen now. Um, my sister would never leave the house without a sandwich in her handbag uh, for fear of uh, starvation. Friends, another acquaintance would never leave her house without $10,000 in cash in her purse. So you're always wary of uh, the next uh, tyrant. So certainly recent history in America just pretty much you know, brought me to my knees emotionally uh, with, with uh, the potential for a similar situation happening. I know you've lived in different parts of the world um, throughout your life. Um, did you, during the last few years, did you think about the possibility of m moving out of the United States? Oh, um, constantly. I, I mean, uh, life in Australia, Australia has, is regarded as having one of the best uh, lifestyles in the world of any, of any place. I think Melbourne is you know, maybe Toronto not far behind as uh, having a, the greatest quality of life in terms of uh, you know, culture and education and healthcare and all, all of those things that are uh, taking care of the disadvantaged um, all, all of that stuff. So it's always, you know, on the, been in the back of my mind. Uh, 
Um, on the other hand, um, the music in America is the music that it's like a magnet. It just keeps me here. I'm I'm here in Nashville. I'm just uh, an hour's drive from Muscle Shoals. I'm uh, three hours drive from Memphis. It's where the music that just uh, you know is is constantly my uh, I don't know. Uh, it's it's my life, and uh, here I am in the middle of it. And uh, I was in Los Angeles in the in the nineties in a similar situation, with the greatest influences, the, the influences I grew up with, that kind of a part of my soul, <laughs> soul thing, <laughs> the, the you know the key word. Um, your dad also introduced you to music, did he not? Did he not show you how to play the piano? He did. He was. Uh, it was an interesting trajectory where uh, um, he his family was very very conservative. His mother was a great pian- pianist. My father was a fabulous piano player, classical. He was a, a, an exponent of, of Chopin's or of Chopin's music. It's uh, what I heard as a child. My father sat me down at the piano at the age of three, and I started picking out uh, melodies, and um, never really, never really stopped um, playing. Uh, uh, what happened to my father at the age of twenty-five? His piano teacher, he continued to to learn, and he'd graduated as a mechanical engineer from Prague University. His piano teacher said, "Well, you have all the potential to be a concert pianist. You have to make a decision. You can't do both." And my father, being the conservative person that he was, said, "All oh, the security of uh, pursuing my work as an engineer will will provide a much more stable uh, environment than than trying to be a concert pianist at this age." So he pretty much abandoned uh, any thoughts of uh, pursuing his musical career and and dove into uh, being an engineer. If I'm not mistaken, did you not have a degree in chemical engineering or something I, like that? I I do. Um, simply to try to please my father, um, he uh, in later years, after working um, many jobs, established his own business in in Australia in Melbourne. Again, specialising in um, uh, food, uh, pharmaceuticals, chemical industry. And, and the equipment for uh, for all of that uh, desperately wanted me to join him in his business and to eventually take it over. So um, I went to school. Uh, I failed miserably at Melbourne University because I, I just couldn't you know, couldn't deal with the, the environment, the culture. Ended up at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, which was uh, now a degree granting. Uh, university and and took me seven years to do a four-year course as, as a chemical engineer and I have this wonderful certificate on my wall that says <laughs> John Capick is now a chemical engineer. I worked with my father after I graduated for about three months and just I couldn't deal with it. I just uh, said because he'd send me out on these sales calls and uh, meeting people and I'd end up in a record store listening to music <laughs> So uh, was was always my passion, and uh, I, I never had the slightest interest in being an engineer. I tr- trying to please my dad, and didn't work out. In fact, uh, I, I, for some tax and corporate reasons, he made me a director of his company, and in one argument, I had the power to fi- fire my father, which I did. <laughs> I fired him uh, through an argument we had. It was quite a funny thing. There's a uh, a perfume, a cologne uh, out of Germany called 4711. It's a very famous, uh, you right. know, inexpensive cologne. And uh, the essence of this cologne was imported into Australia and stored in a like a million-dollar stainless steel vat that my father designed and built. And it started to leak. And they were losing like $2 million a day of, of this thing. And... Uh, I argued with my father saying, you know, you didn't do the welding correctly. What I learned in my course was this is how you <laughs> were supposed to weld it. You did it badly. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to work with you in this environment. Get out of here. <laughs> and he left for one day. And we had a we had it out at home. And then ultimately, you know, I, I realized this is not for me. 
I'm uh, yeah, music is 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 what I want to do. But I, so, but you may, you had you came to the crossroads yourself and had to make the decision between yes that the day job or staying in a band, as I recall. Exactly. Exactly. And you chose at one point the music instead well, yeah. of. Well, that happened uh, uh, on two occasions. One occasion, another occasion was one of the first bands that I joined. Um, before I went full time into music, I, because of my uh, qualification, I became a school teacher for a short uh, amount of time, teaching math and science to seventh and eighth graders. Right after I left my dad, because I had to make a living. And the band I was in started to become quite successful, and they gave me an ultimatum. They said. Uh, we have to tour, give up your day job or give up the band. So I gave up my day job, joined the band. I'm like 20, 20 years old or something, and 21, I think. And uh, um, two weeks later, the band broke up. So that's, <laughs> that's how I became a professional musician. <laughs> so tell me, how, what did you, you talk about your passion for the music, and I mm -hmm. know that Somewhere in there, blues and R&B soul is very close to your heart. Yes. Um, but how did that happen, living in Australia? Um, I think the first record I ever bought, I think I was 11 years old, something like that. There was a record store near my school, and I'd heard a song on the radio, and it was Little Richard singing and playing, uh, Keep a Knockin', Keep a Knockin'. And it just tore into me. I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be that. And I went and bought the single for 10 shillings at this record store and played it over and over again and started banging away on the piano trying to play piano like Little Richard. So that was par part of the starting point. Can I ask you, how good of a piano player were you at the age of 10? Like, were you... Going to the conservatory, or were you taking classical oh, yeah. lessons? I, I was. I took classical. Uh, I continued my classical uh, education even in Toronto in my th in my you know adult life. Uh, trying to, uh, it's invaluable for maintaining uh, 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 my piano technique, and I'm a huge uh, fan of of, of Bach and especially of Glenn Gould's interpretation of Bach. He has a unique take on, on what was the original intent uh, when Bach was creating uh, what I consider to be some of the greatest music ever composed uh, in, the history, <laughs> in the history of the world. And I'm still, I still practice my Bach uh, preludes and fugues. So when, when you have that classical background... Mm -hmm. And and I presume you loved classical music at that same time, playing it. It was more, uh, uh, and uh, you know, um, I, well, I wouldn't say I, I loved it. it. It was a vehicle. It was um, uh, certain certain parts of it. I my my passion for Bach is more an uh, an adult appreciation mm -hmm. than you know when I was but coming I, but up. But I wonder that kid who's mm -hmm. trying to learn Bach and Beethoven. Hmm. And he hears Little Richard. Mm -hmm. How easy is it to say, "I want to play Keep a Knocking"? <laughs> you know, it, it was a visceral, emotional reaction, and maybe th this might be a, a fanciful um, explanation. But um, and a, a dark point of view. But my parents were slaves. They actually were slaves in the concentration camps. Um, and then when we came to Australia, um, my parents didn't speak, barely spoke the language, didn't know what to do with themselves. Uh, the woman who took us in said, okay, time for you to get on with your lives. And so they looked in the newspaper and found an advertisement for it was called a married couple. And the married couple, their job was cleaning and gardening. And so uh, they went for the interview with me. Uh, it was a, a residential hotel in a, in a well-to-do suburb of Melbourne. And uh, 
the woman interviewed them and said, okay, you can have the job. And they said, well, we have no place to live. So she said, well, there's this storage room down by the garages. Um, uh, you can have the storage room. There's no running water, no electricity, no toilet, no bathroom. And uh, uh, the, she said, in exchange... Uh, you will work in exchange for having the use of this storage room to live in. So there was no pay. So once again, they were indentured slaves in Melbourne, Australia, for the first few years of my childhood. So I could, I could suggest that maybe that resonated with me because ultimately uh, blues is regarded as the music of deprivation, the music of slavery. Uh, you know, contemporary black people don't like the blues because uh, it mainly has a white audience because it reminds them of the sad past that they, uh, that they would prefer to reject. And, uh, and uh, so th that's another way of looking at my, uh, you know, my attraction to, to the blues, I guess. So did you easily master the Little Richard riff? Um, to the to the extent that it drove my dad absolutely insane, and at the age of about seventeen, eighteen, I had to move out of out of the house because of the foot stomping and the the banging and crashing on the, on the piano for hours and hours and hours, which I still do. <laughs> and at this point, are you thinking this is what I want to do? I'm, I I know that you went to school for um, for your chemical engineering, yeah, but. Did you think that I'm going to be a musician, that was the, goal, the end goal? You know, it's much uh, kind of uh, more super superficial than that. My best friend at school, his, uh, in grade school, his father was the uh, Australian representative for Universal Pictures for, for the movie studio. And so we had free tickets to go to the movies at the age of 10, 11, 12, and we would go every Saturday, and I'd watch Doris Day, who was still a vir who was you know, regarded as being a virgin, and Rock Hudson, who was straight, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in these great movies. And uh, everybody had blonde hair, and drove a convertible, and had a swimming pool, and lived in Hollywood with palm trees. So I, <laughs> that was I wanted to live in Hollywood, have a swimming pool, drive a convertible, and marry a blonde. That was that was always my uh, my ambition, which I actually did, and it was the worst nightmare of my life. I moved to Hollywood, I married a blonde, I drove a, a, a '64 Thunderbird convertible, and had a swimming pool, and uh, you know, it all was real superficial and all collapsed on itself. But but I did <laughs> did achieve that fantasy for a short time. <laughs> so you were in a, a like a blues band in Australia. Yeah, um, quite a well-known and well-respected uh, band. Tell me about that scene. I've I've talked to a few people from Australia, and I think they were both blues musicians. But tell me about that that blues scene in Australia as you were coming up. What, this would what have been was, the yeah. late mid sixties, late sixties. Yeah. What was interesting was um, you'd hear this music come across on the radio, and uh, some of us kind of felt a passion for it and there was there was no um black there was no black community at all in australia right. so we all wanted we all wanted to be black <laughs> it was like a thing uh we wanted, uh we wanted to experience whatever it was that created this amazing passionate uh, passionate music and uh part of that culture was to track that music back all the way to you know, backwards from Chicago, backwards to Kansas City, backwards to uh, uh, New Orleans, and and find out where all this came from. So there were there were radio shows that would play um, Kid Ory and uh, uh, you know the the original uh, uh, Dixieland jazz from uh, you know, from the turn of the century and Jelly Roll Morton and Fats Waller. And I was captivated by, even prior to the rock and roll version of blues, of where all this stuff came from, which ultimately, um, in around 91, uh, led me to go to South Africa and record my, my album with 
still trying to track back what this blues thing was all about and what were the, the real original roots of it. Um, so the, that first band um, that I played in, um, the, the leader of the band was a, was a tremendous exp exponent of slide guitar, of um, you know, the Crossroads guy, uh, I've forgotten his name. Um, Robert Johnson. Uh, yeah, of Robert Johnson. That was, that was the model for 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 the band for Carson, that was that, you know going really back to the roots and being uh, true exponents of of the roots of, of real blues. So chasing blues cred <laughs> is sort of has been part of my uh, you know, constant battle uh, because I've been so involved in pop music. Uh, um, Often I'm accused of being a blues faker, where I believe I, I really have true blues cred. <laughs> well, when did the the songwriting part become a big thing for you? How did songwriting become who you are? Um, the songwriting came about because uh, perhaps I'm a little bit dyslexic. I always had trouble and continue to have trouble reading music. Yeah, you put a sheet music in front of me, no matter how many years I've been doing this, the eye-to-hand coordination has never quite worked well for me. I really, really have to work at it. So I'd fake out my music teacher by making stuff up. And, uh, and similarly, I was really bad at reading, uh, reading chord charts. Um, and so I got really good at improvisation. And uh, these blues bands that I played in um, uh, started to, as as the years went by, and there was kind of the acid rock culture and a different, you know, Led Zeppelin came about. Our blues tunes would turn into twenty-minute epics, and which required a tremendous amount of improvisation. And uh, a uh, a music publisher. Um, in Sydney, heard uh, came to our shows and said, "Man, you're such a good improviser. Let let me set you up with a lyricist, lyricist, because the two of you, based on your improvisation and his words, maybe something can happen." And that's where where songwriting kind of began. Can you explain to me what makes a good improviser? Like, how does one recognize that you're a good improviser? Um, if you were to ask me um, how I'm feeling today. I could express that in a language that uh, is much more accessible and I'm much better at it sitting at a keyboard and playing how I'm feeling than speaking to you in words. I have, I have much more facility expressing myself, my emotions and my feelings at a keyboard through my hands than any, any words I could ever say. Uh, it's, how, it's, do, how does that happen? Because obviously you started <laughs> music and playing piano, looking at books, mm -hmm. sheet music, classical music or whatever. That's, that's how you would have learned mm -hmm. to play the piano. How did the improvisation or how did you become good at improvising? You, you know, I, I, I think it's different for, me, for everybody. For me, it was, um, I would say... I'm not sure what the correct word is, but acknowledging my limitations. So I found a niche, uh, a kind of a, a way of, of, of playing uh, on a keyboard that's unique to me, and uh, certain notes and certain harmonies. And some of those harmonies, interestingly enough, come from my bohemian Czech background. Because a thousand years ago, uh, a band of marauding Celtic tribes came across Asia through Europe and probably influenced uh, in some way my genetic makeup. So I have an affinity not only to blues but to Celtic music. Uh, as you know, the perfect example is the biggest hit, hit I've ever had, which is uh, Rod Stewart's Rhythm of My Heart, which is a total Celtic, uh, Celtic song. Mm -hmm. And bagpipes, uh, those kind of drones, and those, the harmonies that come from that uh, have also appealed to me and influenced my playing. So um, there's, it's a form of expression. Um, how it came to 
Miles Davis or or a Thelonious Monk or Bach or Chopin. I don't know, but uh, you know, it's something that just I came I came to this earth with. <laughs> so when when that publisher said you should you should pair up and and mm. become a songwriter right. because you're a good improviser, did that make sense to you? Did did that click with you immediately? I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, and I still don't. <laughs> And and uh, which you know we can talk about a little bit because it's an important ingredient. Ingredient, uh, the blank slate. I'll sit down at the piano. I have no preconceived ideas whatsoever, and I didn't then, and I don't now. Um, we wrote a, a couple of songs. They got cut. So I thought, oh, this is good. <laughs> um, maybe this is something I can do. And uh, although the only thing I ever really wanted to do was play piano with the Rolling Stones, but Mick never called me, so. <laughs> So uh, I got into this other stuff. And at what point did you, like you, you say you still don't know, and maybe that's a good thing, but at what point did you consider yourself a songwriter? Uh, <laughs> the first check I got, <laughs> you know, when money started to come in, I thought, oh, okay, uh, I can make money while I'm sleeping uh, through royalties. Right. Um, so uh, that, that was, I think, and, and I did enjoy, uh, I particularly enjoyed hearing my music that I had created come back at me through different media. So I could turn on the radio or, or the TV or walk in a hotel lobby or a supermarket and there I hear something that I made come back at me and there's nothing more fulfilling. And the bigger the audience, the better. Okay, so at this point, are you thinking I'm a songwriter as opposed to I'm a performer? Um, I've always... I've always wanted to be a performer. Um, the big limitation was my singing voice. So uh, as, a, as a piano player, I was always kind of the, the side man. But they, they were equivalent. Uh, uh, I, I get tremendous joy from performing live. And I've been in a couple of bands here in Nashville. And you know, it's, it's always fun to have a, a, a live audience in front of, in front of me. So you never gave up the idea of performing. You also no. did a lot of studio work, did you not? Um, I did a tremendous amount of studio work in, in three different places, in Sydney, um, in uh, Toronto, and uh, in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, I, I became uh, uh, one of the top on-call studio uh, keyboard players for a short amount of time and played on played with some of the... Uh, legendary greatest players, the uh, virtuoso uh, pop music and rock and roll musicians, um, which was just a tremendous joy to to work with these legendary guys. We're talking like um, people from like members of Toto and things like that. Ex right? ex exactly. And then I, for a short time, I was in a band with uh, Cornell Dupree. Cornell uh, was Aretha Franklin's guitar player and played the introduction on Respect. Da da da, you know. Yeah. And uh, um, I also wrote with Cornell um, uh, a bunch of songs that he recorded on an album, and uh, that album uh, got nominated for a Grammy uh, the year that it, it was released. Okay, so, so that, that also. If, if we go back to the guy saying, mm. I think you can write songs. And then all of mm -hmm. a sudden you're starting to get paychecks from writing songs. Mm -hmm. um, at what point are you thinking, this is a career path? This is what I'm going to be doing? Because it's being a songwriter, I don't know, it just seems like a, it's an interesting career choice. But I can't imagine it being an easy career choice. It's not a career, a great <laughs> career choice at all. Um, I, I think my connection with mark jordan was a was a key ingredient because when i first came to toronto um i was still a studio musician uh, i wasn't really thinking about um about uh songwriting uh i met mark jordan in the context of being a studio musician and it's a funny thing despite my bad uh reading and lack of uh, musical theory it's always the keyboard player that seems to get appointed to be kind of the arranger of a rhythm section <laughs> they point to the keyboard player uh, for direction why do you think uh, that is um I, I i think the keyboard player you know usually has a classical background 
the drummer unlikely, the bass player unlikely. So I guess the, the <laughs> keyboard, you know, you've got 10 fingers and a lot of notes. Uh, maybe the assumption is that we know what we're doing. Um, so I was doing a lot of, um, a lot of um, uh, studio work uh, with a lot of legendary, uh, with, um, with Dan Hill, with uh, Ken Tobias, with Downchild, with uh, um, people like that at the time. And uh, that's the context in which I met Mark. And then, again, a publisher said, you two should write. And so we, we, we wrote a couple of songs, and uh, he had a tremendous, uh, how would I say, uh, sort of knowledge of himself musically, of, of what he wanted to sound like, what he wanted the recordings to sound like, and uh, a remarkable poet. It just to his words, my music was like Lennon and McCartney to me, or, or Rodgers and Hammerstein, or something. There was there was a thing that was happening there. And the four, first four songs that we wrote and demoed got immediately cut by Diana Ross and by Manhattan Transfer and by a couple of other people. So something there was some magic created there that you know I had no choice but to pursue it for the next 20 years or so writing with Mark did you know when you cut those four songs that they were something special um I knew they were different I, I we almost had an agenda because we were both signed to publishing companies at the time uh and we were given uh briefs you know write a song for Anne Murray write a song for Kenny Rogers. Uh, both of us completely you know, lost in that, in that arena. But when Mark and I got together, we decided we're going to just break every rule in the book. Our songs are going to have a different form, a different arrangement, a different structure. Uh, and um, by intentionally breaking rules uh, is really how we had our first uh, big successes. Do you go after success or do you go after a good song? And is there a difference? Um, no, <laughs> there isn't a difference. I've found uh, a rather odd thing that a, a great song, and it can, take, it can take months and years sometimes, but a great song seems to find its way. So it, when I'm making the song, I have no kind of vision of it uh, earning me millions of dollars or, uh, or you know, becoming a hit. I, I'm just trying my best to um, beat my own, to, 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 to fulfill myself, to, to, to love what I'm doing, to find right. joy in what I'm doing. But then when it comes back at me on the radio or in a movie, the fulfillment is is just tremendous you know to know that this thing is resonating uh with uh i mean there's there's one situation where uh, rhythm of my heart was played by rod stewart at the opening of the uh, commonwealth games and there were 1.5 billion people watching this thing on tv so to know that i have access to that audience or the handover of hong kong uh to china where there was, a, uh, uh, I think, a 150-voice choir singing this song, or when Olivia sings the song we wrote at the Opera House in Sydney for Australia's Bicentennial, and there's millions and millions of people watching this thing. You can't beat that fulfilment of, of having, having that. But I wonder, I'm sure there must have been some songs you've written that you thought were amazing that m might have not gotten coverage or didn't do well. Most of them. <laughs> I mean, there's only a handful that, that uh, have reached success. I am, I am the world's worst salesperson uh, or entrepreneur. I, you know, I, I write these things. They sit in, you know, on a hard drive or on, on tape, and they sit there forever. And now and again, people will come to me or an opportunity arises or a situation happens, and I say, Hey, you know, here's this song. Uh, mostly my partners, my songwriting partners, are much more aggressive. Uh, Mark is a charming, funny guy who's well-connected, and uh, I think it's through uh, him and his uh, 
place in the world that a lot of the activity that we got uh, happened. Uh, similarly, uh, another partner, Steve Kipner, who have written a bunch of songs with Steve, um, was uh, he wrote "Let's Get Physical" for Olivia Newton-John and "Hard Habit to Break" for Chicago, and "The Genie in a Bottle" for Christina Aguilera are his three biggest hits. Um, he's he's just uh, just a joyful, uh, uh, just extrovert. He he would go to Clive Davis and say, "Man." You got to listen to this song. I, it's it's a, it's a hit, you know. You can't. Den- it's undeniable. You know, I in a million years wouldn't have the guts to, to or the type of personality to, to do something like that. So a lot of the activity has happened in that in that way. I, I get the impression that hits are not just good songs, but there's a lot of machinery that goes behind it, and. Off, and not always, but sometimes there's a lot of money, promotion, a lot of things happen behind the scenes to make a song a hit. You know, there are two different ways of looking at that. There's a hit, and then on the other hand, there is a copyright, a song that lasts forever. My aim and my objective is to write songs that are going to be relevant 50 and 100 years from now. I'm not that interested in a hit. I'm interested in a perennial, uh, a song that's going to last forever. Uh, so every time I sit down to, to make uh, some new music, the object of the exercise is to make uh, a, a song that will never die. And uh, to some extent, I've, I've succeeded in that so- I, I can turn on the TV and watch Joe Cocker singing uh, the end title to the movie... Uh, um, blown away um, night after night, you know, 20 years after it was written. And there, and there it still remains and, and gets played over and over. So um, it really is about um, writing, emulate, you know, I want to be a Mozart or a Beethoven or a Bach <laughs> and have my, have my songs, you know, still resonate, you know, hundreds of years from now. Yeah, that's the fantasy, uh, the reality, you know, probably you know, unlikely, but... But, but when, you, when you write a hit that's as massive as Rhythm of My Heart yeah. or some of the other ones that you've had, like, does mm. that change your perspective in writing? I mean, does that spoil you? Because I, I presume you get a nice check or an, yeah. a nice advance or whatever. And mm. then does that just change the game at all or does it not? Like, are you always focused on just writing a good song, whether it becomes a hit or not? I'm only ever focused on writing a, a good song. You know, whether it becomes a hit is so far beyond my control. Um, you know, it's nothing I, I can do anything about. I mean, I can tell you uh, a, a, a story uh, about uh, uh, um, Bonnie Raitt. You know, how what a roller coaster ride this can be. Um, I, for many years, for almost 30 years, was a staff writer, which means I, I was employed pretty much or contracted by major publishing companies to do nothing but write songs, and they paid me a salary, um, in, mainly in Los Angeles. So they, they sent a couple of uh, songs I'd written with Mark uh, to Bonnie Raitt. Uh, speaking of blues cred, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, she's like an idol uh, of mine. And... Uh, she decided to record the songs, and uh, apparently she tried uh, tried them out with her band. It wasn't working. She liked my demo. Um, it's another thing we should talk about because I don't just write the song; I write the record. I, I, I play all the instruments when I send songs out. Anyway, so sh- uh, I got a call from a management. Uh, Bonnie wants you to come in with your keyboards uh, to play the track. Uh, for these two songs she wanted to record. So there I am in Los Angeles at the record plant with Elton John in the next room. I'm with Don Woz and Ed Cheney, you know, the greatest producer who went on to produce Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones and Ed, one of the greatest engineers. And me and Bonnie Raitt recording my song, my songs, two songs. And um, she had some trouble with the... Uh, 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 range the vocal range of these songs, and uh, I said, you know, we can change them, and the best way to change them is if I invite Mark, Mark Jordan, to come in 
and help and we'll we'll figure out some different notes to make these songs work for you. And Bonnie said, there's no way I'm going to let Mark Jordan into the studio. He's such a great singer, I'm totally intimidated by him. (laughs) (laughs) He is a great singer. (laughs) So um, those songs, with all the work we put in, didn't end up on the album. Um, So a year later, I get a call from Bonnie's management and uh, they said, Bonnie just loves your music um, and she's recording another album, send us something. So I went through my songs and found this lovely song that I thought she'd just kill uh, called The Same Mistake. And I sent that to them, um, heard nothing, nothing back, her album came out, nothing. The publisher sent that same song to Cher and Cher recorded it and ended up you know, on an album and making some money. So a year later, I get a call from Bonnie's management saying, Bonnie just loves your stuff, please send something. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I hand-selected 12 songs, a large catalog that I had, mainly blues-related songs, and I sent that in to, to Bonnie's management. And I get a call back, Bonnie loves all the songs. She's going to record that entire album as it is. We need all the information immediately. We need chord charts. We need the writer splits. We need uh, you know ev- everything you have on them. Uh, we need it right away. So I'm scrambling around. I couldn't even remember who I'd written some of these songs with, somebody in Australia, somebody in, in Canada. <laughs> wow. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm uh, scrambling to get all, the, all this stuff together. Uh, sent it in. Heard nothing for a month. Heard nothing for another month. Album came out. Not one of my songs on, 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 her, on her album. So a year, la- <laughs> a year later, <laughs> I get a call from Bonnie's management saying, Bonnie just loves your stuff. Please send something in. So um, I thought, what the hell? I'll do something. You know, you're never supposed to send more than one or two songs. But I sent Sorry, her. Are you, are you now, are you still with the publishing company? Yes. Or are you yeah, on your no, own? No, I was still with the publishing company at the time. Okay. And so I sent her 36 songs, three albums. And I labeled something old, something new, and something blue. So it was a bunch of old songs, some more contemporary songs, and a bunch of blues songs, 12 songs on each album. And if I was to pick or choose which song she might resonate with, she chose from 1 to 36. She chose number 36 as the one, and she ultimately recorded that song. It's a song called Deep Water. It ended up on an album called Souls Alike, Souls Alike is part of the lyric of that song. And so ultimately I did get my, my uh, Bonnie Raitt cut uh, years after the fact on the, you know, the last song I ever imagined she would do. So interestingly enough, there's even a cap to this story where several weeks ago I had a glass of wine at night. I sat down at the piano, stuck my iPhone next to the piano, and I'm, I'm no way am I a singer. It's been the ultimate frustration of my life. I thought, I'm going to record myself singing a a relatively new song on the iPhone. I recorded this thing, listened back and looked at it and thought, man, Bonnie would like this. So contacted her management and said, do you mind, I'd like to... And I put it up on Facebook. Uh, I just thought Bonnie might like this. So I sent it in. This is about two months ago. Um, this continuing saga that's like 20 <laughs> years old. And I get, I get this wonderful letter back from, from Bonnie saying, man, uh, you, thank you so much for thinking of me. You, uh, you were right. N- not only do I like this song, it just hit me hard. And I love your piano playing and I love your singing. And, uh, you, know, um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not about to record right away, but, you know, I just love this song. And, and I thought, man, you know, that's, for me, an ultimate endorsement. It also gave me permission to sing. So in the last two months, I've been singing uh, on my own demos and not getting bad feedback. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I've opened up a whole other career <laughs> Why do you think you're not a good singer? Um, it's really because Little Richard was my model. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so when you sit down and write a song, mm. 
which would be music, lyrics, mm. yeah. and, and yeah. the melody. Yeah. Does the melody come easy to you? Oh, yeah. And I do sing. I certainly sing when I'm writing. Uh, but I, I was always afraid to send it to anybody. <laughs> but are, are you... If you imagine the melody to be a certain way, mm -hmm. and you write the lyrics and you sing them out, yep. are you able to reach oh, the melodic lines oh, properly with your voice? Absolutely. It's not that I don't sing the right notes or anything. It's more about quality. You know, I have a small voice. Uh, I, I wanted to have a big voice. <laughs> But if mm. Bonnie Raitt likes your voice, well, like I said, that I suddenly I have permission. I've been given, given, uh, you know, she's opened the door. <laughs> At this point, I know you still like to perform, but I, I, do you consider yourself foremost a songwriter? Um, the two are so intertwined. Um, because when I perform, I'm always improvising. The worst nightmare of my life where I think I've been close, closest to suicide, uh, was playing at the Montreal Hilton Hotel with Cliff, Cliff Edwards, I think it was, years and years and years ago. And three sets a night were, uh, you know, for days on end, we're, it's, we're playing, uh, I can't, uh, Danny O'Keefe song, I can't remember the name of it. Man. Or it was me and my Bobby McGee or something, like over and over again, the same way, uh, <laughs> emulating the record. It's my worst nightmare. When I, when I play, I want to play whatever it is differently every time I play to extend the improvisation, to make it, you know, how far can I reach out to, to change this and make it better or make it more interesting? Um, so the the idea of improvising is still a big part of what you do, mm -hmm. even when you work in the studio. Absolutely, yeah. So um, and, and like I said, I when I write now, I I I create the record, and that's what I do with Mark. So Mark, uh, I I created tracks. I didn't just play a bunch of chords. There was a bass line and a counter melody, a lot influenced by uh, by Bach because Bach had these sort of intertwined uh, uh, counterpoint melodies I intertwining against each other. So I'm a huge fan of, of, of great bass players who not only play the root bass but, but play, uh, play like a tenor bass where they create melodies. A lot of my songs are based around a bass line. So I create a bass line and then put the most ridiculous, interesting chords over that bass line and that is kind of the starting point. Uh, for a lot of my songs, which is this little niche I was talking about uh, uh, of my own way of creating music. Okay, so when you work for a publisher as a songwriter, mm -hmm. how does the contract work? Like, a, do you, you don't forfeit every, anything or everything, do you, by becoming a staff writer? Like, no. if, if you write the songs, you're still the writer of those songs and oh, you retain some rights to those songs. Absolutely. It's, you know, traditionally, it was split 50-50, so the publisher p pays uh, a weekly salary or an advance of some money, and... Uh, Whatever you write over that term is split in some way or another. Whatever money comes in between me and the publisher, and uh, and then, how does the working thing happen? Like, are you? Is this a nine to five job or oh, no. <laughs> ten to six? Or like, mm. how do you how do you become a staff writer? And do they expect X number of songs from you every week or every month or? Some some contracts do expect uh, they do have a quota of some um, you know so many songs, twenty songs a year or something like that. Um, I was never really subject to that. Um, I was very fortunate to have uh, very creative uh, publishers who signed me and wanted to work with me for that specific niche for that thing that I do. So uh, the last really big publishing uh, contract I had was with uh, a fellow by the name of Rob Dickens. Rob was the youngest CEO of Warner Records in England, and uh, he was like the Clive Davis of England, uh, responsible for um, all of Rod Stewart's A&R uh, choices for many years, for Cher, uh, for he... Um, I, I'm trying to think of all the acts that he was uh, involved with. So he formed his own publishing company. 
And at one point we weren't getting any action and I tried to cater to what I thought was the current whatever it was. And I sent him a song in that in that form, uh, trying to be what I thought he wanted. And he wrote me back this angry thing saying, man, Capek, you know, I just want the Capek chords. Don't, don't try and be something else. Do what you do. <laughs> so I really appreciated that to be, you know, to have people work with me specifically for what I do. And I continue that, which doesn't work too well in the current environment because, uh, you know, um, we're, we're in an era of uh, well, melody and chords. Uh, you know, we're not interested in those anymore. Okay, people talk about streaming and how poorly people get paid mm -hmm. um, through different services. One thing I don't understand is, Let's say you had a hit like Rhythm of My Heart. Mm -hmm. um, but, you, but you could possibly make on, that, on a song like that, and I don't want dollar figures, but, but mm -hmm. you could possibly make on a song like that from Radio Play. Mm -hmm. Could you not still make that same amount of money from Radio Play, or does Radio Play become a lot less because of the current environment? Not at all. Radio Play, as far as I know, is, hasn't changed. Um, and just so you know what the value of one song is, over the period of time between two writers and two publishers, that song has probably generated about $10 million over, over, wow. over its lifetime um, for, for that end of it and probably another 10 for Rod. Um, so it's, wow. it's, it's a lot of money. And radio has, as far as I uh, can tell, has not changed. It's still... They're required to pay pretty much the same as they always have. So writing a song is what you do. Do you do this every day? Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I've had a, um, a roller coaster life because of my passion. Uh, I haven't been that great at um, uh, relationships or at controlling my finances, and you know, it's been a rock and roll life. Uh, so, I haven't. Uh, my peers have saved their money and invested in real estate and in other things. I haven't. So I need to continue to work. So um, work comes in to me mainly doing independent production. So somebody wants to make a record, they come to me. Um, I uh, take the raw song, which usually comes to me as a guitar vocal, and then I create the record. And in the creation of that record, I am essentially writing. When I make a bass line, it's not just you know playing the, the bottom end of a chord. I am creating a bass line that 50 years from now, when that song is played at a Holiday Inn, uh, the bass player is going to play the bass line that I invented. Uh, and so that's my, my process of uh, still writing. And uh, at the moment, I am actually currently writing with uh, Robert Priest. Robert Priest is a published uh, Toronto poet, quite, quite well known, and he's been sending me lyrics. And to get a release from the, uh, the job, the, the jobs that I have of producing these indie uh, projects, I get a lot of release and relief from taking an established poet's lyrics and, uh, and writing songs with him. So I'm doing that now, currently. Now, in, in both those cases, if somebody says, if I send you a bunch of my songs and you said you're going to produce it and you listen to the music, does, does the overall picture come to you very quickly? Or is that something you really work at? And same thing with Robert Priest sending you a poem. Mm -hmm. Do you... Automatically, does it quickly come to you as to what you envision that thing to be? It, it, or does it take a lot of work? It, it's similar to that language, and it's very odd, and I can't explain it. But Robert, because he is uh, a craftsman, the lyrics that he sends me are usually in uh, a correct established song form. They have the correct, number, correct rhymes, correct uh, verses and choruses. I generally can put print out the lyric, put it on the piano, and the, the essential song, melody and chords, is created in half an hour when it's done. 
creating the record is, is a whole other thing. Can take take uh, a hundred. I generally look at about a hundred hours to make to make a record. Um, and do you know when you've got the right idea? Yeah, yeah. Like it's quite obvious yes. to you that yeah, this is where it should be. Exactly. Yeah. And before you said. I've been doing this all my life, but I still don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> but but you do. Well, it's a funny thing. Um, it's it's a language. It's not it's not like when I'm speaking to you now. I'm not analyzing and figuring out every word I say. It just it, it's you know the the words come out and the thoughts come out. Um, and like I said, I speak that language better than this one. Um, so it's just an expression of of uh, what those words tell me uh, musically. Uh, when you ask about somebody who is not a Robert Priest, uh, a starter or a beginner or a, somebody who's not a craftsman, the first thing that appears to me are the mistakes or the errors or the things that make this what I'm being sent to work with inaccessible. So accessibility is like uh, uh, almost a religion to me. I need this to be accessible. Without an audience, without a listener, the exercise is almost pointless. So um, even in writing a great song, even if it goes nowhere, I want to know that what I've created is accessible. So I correct the mistakes. I may rewrite a lyric or recreate a melody. So for instance, one of the current projects, I'm working on three current projects, and one of them is somebody, a, a woman from Toronto, who wants to record a bunch of Indian uh, uh, man- mantras. Um, and so she sends me 16 bars of a mantra that she has sung, and my job then is to create a three to five minute piece of music on this repeating mantra. Hmm. Which is like fascinating to me and and and, and a wonderful experience. Um, the other one that just came uh, was locked in last night is an Australian crooner, like a sort of a Tony Bennett Sinatra, who wants to do an Aerosmith song in a in a in a crooning uh, kind of you know um, a great American songbook style and. Uh, full of mistakes so uh, I have to have a telephone conference with him now and to make sure that he's good with me making the changes that I'm about to make to what he what he's done with this song can you explain Uh, what a mistake is how do you define a mistake um well the song that he's doing is I don't want to miss a thing by Aerosmith huge huge hit and um that song was written by Diane Warren Diane Warren is one of the most successful songwriters in the history of popular music. Um, I happen to know Diana distantly, you know, we've sort of met a couple of times. And um, the song has a melody, it has chords. Everybody knows that song, they've heard it somewhere, someplace, sometime. And he's changed the melody and changed the chords. And uh, I, my dilemma is I, 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 for to, to, to suggest to Diane Warren that his chords and his melody are going to be better or, or uh, are going to work or going to resonate or be accessible it's not going to work uh, we need uh, I can slow it down I can make it into uh, uh, a ballad uh, I can do it as if Tony Bennett was doing it or Diana Kroll or whoever I can put it in that form but it still has to retain the recognizable melody that everybody knows of that song. So we're going to have a, a little battle to, <laughs> to see. And if he doesn't agree, I'll, I'll just dump the gig. I, I won't do it. Uh, um, how have you changed as a songwriter over the years? Um, I think um, the current uh, fashion of music is a dilemma for me. I, I honestly, in my old age sort of get off my lawn stage of my life uh, I, I truly don't understand it I don't understand a lot of contemporary music um, it it, uh, it just sort of 
Uh, I, I, I'm a melodist. I like uh, harmony. I, I love listening to jazz. Um, even though I don't understand a lot of what, what's going on there, I, I enjoy it because of the freedom and because of the unpredictability of what's coming out, what is Ornette Coleman going to do next with Charlie Parker or Charlie Mingus. Uh, I, I love to to listen to that. It's like watching a, a great sports game where you don't know the outcome. Um, contemporary music is just profoundly predictable. There are no surprises. You know, to me, great drama is about uh, tension and release, and I don't see any of the, any of the tension and release components. If you listen to my songs, uh, the the component of uh, the psychological uh, concept of tension and release are very much what uh, my improvisation and songwriting is all about. I improvise to suck in an audience into the tension, longing for the release, and uh, you know I delay the release as long as I possibly can until it must happen and then the climax happens and that sort of explains great storytelling great music great sex you <laughs> know it's like uh, it, that, that's what life is about uh, so that that form of storytelling otherwise it's once upon a time they lived happily ever after uh, you have to have the, that center of storytelling do you think i mean when you say you don't understand the contemporary music yeah. Is this the first time in your lifetime that you felt this? Because I just wonder that there's often trends and things change. Yeah. The music in the 80s was quite different from the music in the 70s and the 90s. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously it's going to change again, but mm-hmm. do you think it's, I mean, why do you think it is the way it is that you can't relate to it at this point? Um, it. It really, I, th- I think fashions and trends are about rejection, you know, where children reject their parents, uh, um, you know, we're going to do it our way. Right. Um, so, uh, but the rejection of harmony and melody uh, is something that I, I find... Um, I look at as a as a reactive response. So, um, you know, you're only allowed four chords, three or four chords, in just about all the contemporary music uh, I hear. And uh, the the melisma that used to be uh, passionate uh, singing now becomes uh, sort of part of the part of a song for no reason. Melisma was there to accentuate to to. Uh, to show emotion, or melisma was there to fulfill uh, a chordal uh, harmonic structure where the inter- there were no instruments to provide it. So if you get an a cappella choir singing uh, black gospel music, the melisma was there to fill in uh, notes of a missing chord. Um, it was there for a purpose. Now melisma is there for no, no reason whatsoever that I can understand. So I can look at a song like Shallow or the songs from ha- from Hamilton. I absolutely do not understand what that is in terms of melody and harmony. Yet kids sing along with that and are perfectly happy and comfortable with it. For me, I, I don't get it. Do you ever go through a dry spell? Have you ever gone through no. a dry spell where you couldn't write? Never, never. It's like I, you know, not speaking. Uh, I, you know, you wake me up at four in the morning. I'll write you a song. <laughs> really? Yeah. And yeah. The, do you find the process easy or difficult? Um, it's well, the 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 creative process is easy, and like any great, if I look at, I, I don't mean to be egotistic or something but um you'll talk to any great writer any great creator the creation and the concept is simple it's the editing it's the rewrites that's that's the the tough you know awful part i mean i i I can get the original concept in minutes and then take six months to edit Hmm. which with some of my songs with with mark have been rewritten over a period of six months before they were considered complete. 
So it's the editing process that, that is just laborious and, and tortu torturous. And you'll find that amongst most uh, great artists that, that uh, you know, they'll, they'll, yeah, there's an interesting um, uh, Picasso's uh, Guernica, the big anti-war uh, mural that he created. Uh, you look at it, it looks like a cartoon. And then you investigate, and there's books and books and books of his pre-sketches that he did before he created the final mur mural that he spent months uh, you know, laboriously uh, you know, thinking about and conceiving of all the preliminary sketches before he created the final piece. So it's the same for me, uh, constantly editing and fine-tuning until it feels like this is done. I presume they're all like your children, but are there songs that are you most proud of? Um, yeah, um, one that comes to mind that specifically described um, the uh, storming of the the Capitol on on the sixth of January is a song I wrote with Mark called "This Independence," and it's up on my uh, on my Facebook. I just put it up again. It's quite old, and there's a very poignant video of of uh, revolution go going on. And, and it's a very interesting structured song because it's sort of a 12-bar uh, uh, piece of four sections of three, which, which is unheard of. It, it's very um, unbalanced in a way until its revolution, uh, resolution. It has a unique structure to it. So, yeah, um, that, that's one for sure. Wow. I'll definitely check mm. it out. Um, John, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure meeting you and talk to you about Welcome. your interesting life in songwriting. And I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you for taking the interest. I hope it's uh, been of interest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I look forward to hearing more of your songs, and um, thanks again. Okay.